from CJSR FM 88.5. My name is Matt Hergy, and this is the CJSR edition. Acclaimed Canadian author Lawrence Hill knows a lot about blood. As the author of this year's Massey Lecture, Hill has dived in to the Ruby River. In his book, Blood, the Stuff of Life, Hill investigates how blood can mean different things to different people and how its meaning has changed over time. Today, blood is a double-edged sword. It both haunts and heals us. In the end, though, there is no substitute for it. <laughs> Maybe it's the color. Maybe it's because blood doesn't look like anything else in, in nature, almost. Like, when do you see something and mistake it for blood and you're wrong? It happens very rarely. Usually, when you see blood, you know it. It's the CJSR edition. This is the CJSR edition. Broadcasting from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada on 88.5 FM and CJSR.com. On this week's show, we proudly present The Blood is Blood. The Blood is Thicker Than Water show. Two long-form interviews about the substances that sustain us. It's blood and water on the CJSR edition. First up, Lawrence Hill talks about the liquid that singularly unites us and divides us. Blood. 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 How it acts as a marker of inclusion and exclusion. How it's so vital to our sense of ourselves, how it's used to understand physical prowess and illness at the same time. Then later in the program, water. 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 We speak with the foremost Canadian expert on the matter, Maud Barlow, national chairperson of the Council of Canadians and tireless advocate for water sustainability. Her newest book, released earlier this year, is called Blue Future. It's the CJSR edition Stay with us. Blood, 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 blood. Water, 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 blood, 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 my guest today is acclaimed Canadian writer Lawrence Hill. Hill is the author of nine books of fiction, as well as nonfiction, including the award-winning 2007 novel The Book of Negroes. His newest book, Blood, The Stuff of Life, was published in 2013 and serves as the basis of this year's CBC Massey Lectures. Blood, The Stuff of Life, offers a critical examination of the socio-political significance of blood. It details how our perceptions of the red substance have changed over time, how blood brings us together and pulls us apart, how it pulses through religion, literature, 
and the visual arts. How it's a marker of identity, belonging, gender, race, class, citizenship, athletic superiority, and nationhood. Hill's book takes the substance that is so integral to our very humanness that we almost take it for granted and places it under a microscope, examining it from every possible historical and contemporary angle until blood is elevated to its rightful place in the reader's mind. Yeah, it's cool to sort of take something that we almost take for granted, something as basic as our blood, and then stop and think about it and kind of really get into it. I reached Lawrence Hill from a CBC studio in Toronto. So are you all ready to go for the Massey lectures and stuff? Yes, I am, and And we're also ready to go for the interview now, too. Okay, well, that's perfect. I want to just start then, uh, perhaps with a simple question, but uh, perhaps it may yield a more sophisticated answer. After reading this book, uh, uh, Mr. Hill, what is blood? Well, Blood is a fluid, about six liters of which flows in our veins. It contains all sorts of different cells and nutrients uh, and waste products. It circulates like a river through our bodies that keep us alive. It's a fluid that we can take from ourselves and give to other people. Quite rare for the human body just to be able to take something from oneself even regularly and give it away and not be damaged and do it again a little later and again and again. Uh, So blood, of course, is a liquid that keeps us alive, a sacred fluid, but it's also uh, a representation of all the ways that we understand ourselves. Interesting. Could you elaborate on that idea of, uh, of blood being able, blood being a, a, a liquid uh, that allows us to understand ourselves? Well, for thousands of years, we humans sort of coasted in the West, certainly in Western civilizations, on the theory that the body was made up of four humors one of which was blood. And blood had to be kept in balance with the other humors. And if you were ill or diseased or injured, perhaps you needed to have some blood let out in order to reestablish the correct balance between your humors. And it's hard to imagine sometimes, but this way of thinking of blood being one of the four humors needing to be in balance with the others and needing to be let out of the body when there was too much of it for one's own good health, this dominated our sense of ourselves physically for thousands of years. And for thousands of years, we practiced bloodletting actively in the West. But with this notion of blood needing to be let out of the body when there's too much and blood sort of affecting and being tied up with one's personality, if you have a lot of blood or the right sort of amount, perhaps you might be a sanguine person. The very word comes from blood, sanguine. Um, With this idea that blood is central to our personality comes all sorts of social ideology about representations of blood. People assume that if you're a certain race, well, that race is, quote-unquote, in your blood. Perhaps they assume that you might be inferior if you're a woman because of the way you bleed monthly. There are so many ways that blood in our imaginations feeds into the ways we treat each other and see ourselves, and that's what interests me the most. Mm. You you write in the book that blood is just about the hardest stain to get out of our clothes because the hemoglobin uh, the hemoglobin in blood acts as a binder uh, when it hits air and binds with the fibers of your clothes. But I think it's also possible to use this analogy when we talk about how blood has this singular ability to implant ourselves, implant itself on our imagination. Why why do you think it has that ability? Well, that's such an interesting question, and you're, you're so right. I mean, just think of Lady Mac. 
Macbeth. I mean, even though she might have been able to get away with her crime, she can't because she's got blood on her hands and her mind, and she knows that she's got blood on her hands. And even though literally it's probably been washed off and you can't see it anymore, she's uh, consumed with the idea that there's blood on her hands and she can't get it off. Um, that whole out damn spot thing really harkens to the notion of the unremovability of the evidence. <laughs> Maybe it's the color. Maybe it's because blood doesn't look like anything else in, in nature almost. Like when do you see something and mistake it for blood and you're wrong? It happens very rarely. Usually when you see blood, you know it. You know, you know there's trouble and you rarely see blood and um, and don't think it's blood or see something else and mistakenly attribute it to blood, uh, unless it's fake blood. So uh, it's singular in the way it looks. Uh, it's connected to our psyches, and we th we feel it's sacred. I mean, we have this relation to the blood in our bodies that's unlike any other. Like, are we all worked up about our saliva or our urine? No, we barely give those things a second thought unless we have some particular problem. We don't think about other fluids or substances. Do we get fixated on our kidneys or our livers or our toes? Not really, unless, again, there's a specific problem and you have a kidney or a liver disease or something, you're not normally going to be thinking about those organs very much at all. They don't sort of feed into your sense of self. But blood, absolutely. You know, in blood you encounter your own blood you encounter, unless you lead an incredibly protected life, you'll certainly spill your blood a few times in your life. <laughs> of course, women spill it monthly, and so they should. If they're not spilling it, they're not healthy if they're of childbearing age, unless they're bearing children in that nine-month period. They need to be spilling their blood uh, monthly to stay alive. So we have all these encounters with our blood that we don't have with other parts of our body. So I, I think we truly do think of it as something magical. And finally, we have this complex relationship with blood. On one hand, it can save us. On the other hand, it can kill us. So blood can unite us, it can divide us, it can save us, it can kill us, literally and figuratively. And so we give a great importance in our, in our bodies, but also in our psyches. It, it's visceral, is it not? Blood, when, when we see it? It sure is. It has a smell, too. Uh, now, near the beginning of the book, you highlight this personal anecdote about your relationship with your own blood, and it's that schoolyard accident where you cut your hand, and then you had this urge to mark the earth with your own blood to sort of... I, I really like that description to prove that you were alive, almost. Yeah. Uh, why did that event imprint itself on you so concretely? Well, uh, for your listeners that don't know, in a nutshell, what happened was that I was a young boy. I was maybe seven or eight. I don't remember exactly, but I was quite young. And I was playing on all fours, hide-and-seek on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, cut myself on the schoolyard, put my wrist down on a broken beer bottle, obviously not knowing not seeing it, I put it down, cut myself quite, you know, quite deeply. So I was bleeding heavily, way more than you should be bleeding. Uh, and so I was quite frightened. So I ran home and all the way home, 200 meters uphill on a sidewalk. I made sure that my blood spattered out onto every panel of the sidewalk. I want to mark every single panel of that sidewalk between the point of accident and my mother's and father's house, which was 200 yards up the street. And <laughs> I guess you could just laugh and say that that was a very immature and silly boyish thing to do, which it was. But I think I'm interested in it because 
of my mind. Like, what possesses an eight-year-old boy who's terrified and maybe in a little bit of shock to slow down enough to do that, even in his terror? Clearly, to me, this fluid that was pouring out of me was sacred, and I didn't want to waste it. I wanted to use it to mark my to mark my presence in the sidewalk, almost like etching your initials into wet cement. You know, that's very attractive to an eight-year-old. Well, this is even better. Spilling your blood on the sidewalk? Is that ever a way of marking your territory and perhaps laying down your immortality for all to behold? <laughs> so even at a very young age, you you sort of had a sense of the importance of blood. Honestly, if you talk to any healthy eight-year-old, they'll have a sense of importance, too. You know, if any healthy eight-year-old is going to know if it's going to be very worked up if there's a lot of blood spilling from their body they know that's not a good thing and they'll be quite um concerned about it and they know that it's wrong they know we know at a very young age that that stuff's supposed to be kept inside it's not it's not supposed to be pouring out I think the big question that often comes up throughout the book is whether or not uh, this fascination with blood, this human fascination with blood, is, is like biologically rooted in, in humans or whether or not it's societally created. I think it's both. I mean, I don't know. I think that we're wired to know that if we're spilling lots of blood, there's something wrong, and we need to. Animals know that too, you know. Um, well, for one thing, if animals detect your blood spilling, and that animal happens to be a shark or maybe a grizzly in the woods, well, you're going to smell even more tasty, and you, you'll be that much more attractive as bait. Um, so animals come after you, um, dogs and bears. They know about your blood and the smell of it, you know. Um, sometimes even women, you know, who are hiking, I, I do, I love to hike. And if you're hiking in an area that's infested with bears, say in Banff or something, sometimes there are warnings, you know, uh, be careful if you're menstruating, if you're a woman that, you know, you, you might be in danger. And so there are all sorts of ways in which animals respond to blood. And, um, uh, so yeah, I just don't think we can ever quite shake it. Near the beginning of the book, you say that you've had a lifelong obsession with blood. I'm curious how your relationship with uh, this particular substance has morphed or morphed through the writing of a, of a book like Blood, The Stuff of Life. I don't know that my relationship with blood morphed or changed in the course of the writing. I think what happened is that I was given a year to really ponder and think about all the different ways that I relate to it. Let's be honest. I mean, in a normal day, in a normal year, I'm not spending all of my day wondering about my blood. I am more connected to it and fixated on it than most people for all sorts of personal reasons, which I can talk about if you want. But but I think what happened is that the book gave me, and the writing the lectures gave me the chance to meditate on all the different ways that I am connected to my blood, and again, that other people, I think, are connected to theirs. Well, you alluded to it then. Let, let's talk about that. You have a unique perspective on, on blood for a number of different reasons. Uh, your familial relationships with blood, uh, your diabetes, the link to your ancestry. What stands out to you the most? Well, I mean, whether it's diabetes or whether it's being a recreational athlete still and having been a serious but very 
ineffective uh, competitive runner when I was younger, um, whether it's race, you know, whether it's injecting insulin daily and monitoring my own blood sugars several times a day so I need to know what my blood is doing, you know, at, at key moments in the day, especially before and after exercise or before and after eating, that kind of thing. So I'm checking it. I have to. That's considered good management of, of a disease. Um, so I do have a reason to be aware of it on a regular basis. Um, I would say that the first notion of blood that I had was blood as a physical substance that, that was frightening to be spilling out of my body. So the first notion of it was the physical blood that was coming out of my body in accidents when it shouldn't have been when I was a young boy. But quite soon following on the heels of that is the notion of blood as a representation of race and the idea that growing up myself in Toronto in a mixed race family, black father, white mother, I came to be drawn early in life into notions of myself and notions of race and an early awareness that race and blood, blood in our minds, are very closely tied together. Whether we like them to be or not, other people will tie them together for us and will constantly speculate about your blood. Say, oh, I see, you're half and half, as if truly <laughs> your blood can be divided into racial parts, which mm -hmm. is an absurdity, but we think that way anyway. I guess that leads me to my next question then. One of the, I, f I think one of the primary theses of this book is that our perceptions of blood oftentimes don't align with the reality of what it actually is. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, in your opinion, what accounts for these disconnects? Well, uh, I think what's happened, I don't know, that's a huge question and I'll just do my best here. I, I think we have sort of taken literally the ideas of blood and and we've bought the metaphors as if they're factually based when indeed they're just metaphors they're just ideas so we've come to truly imagine that blood and race can be equated and that you can quantify race in the blood even though such a thing is complete is a complete absurdity. So we have the Supreme Court of Canada in 2003 weighing in on whether or not a Métis father and son are sufficiently Métis to be hunting without a license because one is supposedly only has 164th Métis blood and the other, the son, supposedly has only one 128th Métis blood according to arguments that have been made by others in court. And so we have, you know, our institutions, parliaments and courts, ruling on racial identity based on blood quantum or being asked to do so. Um, and so we have taken this idea that is Im imaginary and we've begun over time to treat it as something that was real. And for anybody who thinks that this is just a theoretical meditation with no practical applications in life, all you have to do is start thinking about genocidal murders over the course of time, including the Rwandan genocide or the Holocaust or the Cambodian genocide or the Spanish Inquisition. Each time it seems we start murdering each other genocidally as humans. We call into play the impurity of the blood of our victims, and we justify our heinous acts by describing our victims' blood as impure. Over and over we do this. What does that mean, impure? 
Right. Uh, we'd buy it over and over again. We sell it. Perpetrators of genocide use this to, to sort of defend their actions. And so I would argue that it's not just a theoretical passive observation on my p- part, but that it plays out in real life over and over again and continues to today. Why do, you bu- why do we buy it as humans? Why do we buy into that idea? Maybe sometimes some parts of us, some evil parts of us in some parts of the world here and there need to hate, and blood is easy to latch onto because of its strong metaphoric value. Um, I suppose if we didn't have blood, you know, we're still going to go on hating from time to time. We might latch onto something else. I don't know what, but we do have blood, so that's, I don't know what to say. It's easy, you know, it's easy uh, over and over again. Think of women and witches and the way to demonize a witch and a burner at the stake. Think of all the thousands of women who've been killed because they were allegedly witches sucking the blood of innocent people and so forth. We burn a witch at the stake because her, maybe she's bloodless or her blood is impure. Even witches were gone after women, you know, who are said to be witches, uh, were gone after because of their so-called blood impurities. Hmm. I have two more questions. I understand that uh, we're sort of running out of time here, but a, a, a large portion of your book is dedicated to how our our notions of blood have evolved over the years. You describe it as a symbol and a substance that, that divides us and reveals us and unites us. One of the most interesting things about it is what it reveals about our generosity. I mean, when you think about it, normally if you want to donate, you want to give, you want to help another person, you'll be paid for it or you'll be recognized or you'll get a tax break or at least the person you're giving to will get down on their knees and thank you (laughs) if you give, say, a million dollars to a museum or something and you get the museum to name part of it after you. (laughs) But when you give blood, first of all, normally you're not paid uh, unless it's plasma and even there you're not paid much. Um, Nobody knows who gave it. You don't know who you gave it to. Many people will get pieces of your blood because your blood will be broken down and, you know, distributed in parts. And so it's a very selfless, you know, truly philanthropic way to give. And you're giving something, there's a bit of pain and discomfort involved, and it's coming out of your own body. So it brings out the best of us. And when, you know, when times are tough and somebody does something awful, like blow up the Twin Towers in New York or bomb the marathoners in Boston, people rush to blood donation centers they want to give to express their humanity. So that's something beautiful about blood. My final question, and I think it relates to that, the entire conversations that the entire conversation that we've had today. Uh, blood has this ability to pervade our psyche, and it lends itself as a route to how we reconcile sort of our humanness. And it has this ability to create distinction and therefore conflict, but it also has this ability to uh, bring people together. So, how do we? Uh, how can we use blood to uh, move beyond this? Uh, paradigm of distinction into a paradigm of oneness. I think that the thing to do is to use all the best ways that we think about blood that unite us. You know, if you're moved by the suffering of of others to give your blood, or if you feel a beautiful connection in your family and you imagine that that, that that's blood-based and it spurs you to have greater sense of self or identity or good feelings about the world because you feel confident in yourself, that's great. Those are all ways that we can draw upon blood for strength, to give to others or to just live well. But if blood is sucking us into negative behavior or if we're allowing our governments and our courts or our genocidal perpetrators to use blood to justify 
unjust actions to say the least then of course we need to try to shake those instincts off and move to a more noble way of living so i guess we have to use our judgment about blood use it when it's good and cast it off when it's bad lawrence thank you so much for your time i really really appreciate it thank you very much okay bye for now bye-bye lawrence hill's newest book blood the stuff of life was published by anansi press in august 2013 It will serve as the foundation for this year's CBC Massey Lecture Series, which I should note here is making a stop in Edmonton today, October 25th, 2013, at the University of Alberta's Meyer Horwitz Theatre. The lecture, entitled From Humans to Cockroaches, Blood in the Veins of Power and Spectacle, begins at 8 p.m. Lawrence Hill also has a free event at the University of Alberta at noon today, You can find more information about these talks, as well as more information about Lawrence Hill's writing on cjsrnews.com. This is the CJSR edition, and we'll be back after this very short break. CJSR edition on 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on cjsrnews.com. Welcome back to the CJSR edition. Up to 60% of the human body is comprised of water. The brain is composed of 70% water and the lungs nearly 90%. About 83% of our blood is water. Okay, my name is Maud Barlow and I'm the national chairperson of the Council of Canadians, which is a national nonpartisan nonprofit environmental and social justice movement in Canada. Well Maud Barlow says that water is the blood of the earth. And noting the significance of water, Barlow has tirelessly advocated for water sustainability for over ten years. She has fought to change people's perception around H two O urging them to think about water as a right and not a commodity. In 2009, she served as senior advisor on water to the 63rd President of the United Nations General Assembly and was a leader in the campaign to have water recognized as a human right by the United Nations. She is also the author of many reports and several books focused on water sustainability. On October 10th, 2013, Maud Barlow arrived at the University of Alberta to speak about her newest book, Blue Future, Protecting Water for People and the Planet Forever. I had the opportunity to speak with Barlow about the current realities of water sustainability prior to her lecture. Well, we're in deep trouble as a planet. Um, You know, it obviously depends on where you live, and it's still very hard in in Canada to get people to understand the crisis globally. A colleague calls it the, 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 the reality of modern water, and that is that in the West and in the, you know, in the more um, urban areas, more um, certainly in uh, neoliberal capitalist world, 
we see water as being a resource for our pleasure, profit, and convenience, and we don't see it as the essential element of a living ecosystem. We just have completely divorced ourselves. And water has become a resource for a certain kind of uh, society, a certain kind of industrial development, a certain kind of economic development. So we dump whatever we want in it, and we move it anywhere we want, and we pave over if it suits us, and we, uh, <clears throat> you know, we, we think we're going to look after one part of an issue like air pollution, you know, by shale gas fracking or biofuels, because who cares about water? So we have this myth of abundance and this notion that water is here to serve us. We see water as a legal uh, entity, that we own water, it's property. <clears throat> and this kind of thinking has led us to displace, pollute, and mismanage the world's water to the point where we really literally are a planet running out of water, and I document that very clearly at the beginning of the book. Demand for water is going straight up and the supply is going straight down, even though we all learned back in grade six that wasn't possible. In fact, it is indeed possible, and it is indeed happening right now. You said it. Uh it's difficult as Canadians to see holistically how dire a crisis is. How how do how can we as Canadians sort of wrap our heads? Well, we better stop thinking that we have all the water in the world, for one thing. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago that Environment Canada removed from its website that we had 20% of the world's water. I mean, everybody kept saying to them, that's wrong. Yes, okay, technically, if you, if, you t if you dry up every drop, every lake, every aquifer, every river, yes, we do. But if you, if you, um, you, know, you look at using the water that we can access without ruining, without ruining the base, we have about 6.5% of the world's fresh water. And we are polluting it. We are over extracting it we are <clears throat> we are careless with it um, here in Alberta particularly there are many things that are being done I mean I consider Alberta probably to be the first water have not province it's the one that's most in distress although there are other areas of distress there's Lake Winnipeg there are the Great Lakes there are many issues across the country but this is a place where water is just with abandon being used for more and more exports which of course is exporting the water out of the watersheds you don't have to put a pipeline in to export water away. So, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that it's not going to take, you know, a set of emergencies in Canada for Canadians to realize what we're up against. I fear that it may. Part of the reason for the work that we do at the Council, the work that I do, the book, this book that I've written and others, is to try to get people thinking about it, have it taught in schools and so on, so that we're not going to start caring about it only when, you know, the Bow River isn't running anymore because the glaciers are gone. And everybody said, oh, yeah, I think I remember reading that that was a glacier-fed river, well, you know, we got to get our heads around this because even if we manage to hold on to our water, and we do, in, in fact, have more water per capita, per capita than most countries, in a world running out of water with water refugees, we're going to have to answer to this water and to other people who have, uh, have a need of it. Is there a singular greatest threat to Canada's water? There are two major issues that I see around water in Canada that are, are the greatest threats. One is the cuts to freshwater protection that has happened under the Harper government. He has gutted the, the Fisheries Act, the, the Navigable Waters Protection Act, the Environmental Assessment Act. 99% of our lakes and rivers now are absolutely unprotected from any pipeline carrying the dirtiest crude on earth going under, over, or around them. I mean, Lac Megantic was delisted, for example, fr from protection. Even on top of that, I'm just thinking the, the 
the research facilities, the uh, absolutely um, the experimental lakes area. Experimental lakes area, one one uh, science center after another. The war on science. They've shut down the the major center that was looking after the Great Lakes. I mean, it's as if it's as if. Any talk of water protection is anathema to this government because they so want to promote and protect the extractive industries, and they wanted to remove every single barrier to these extractive industries having whatever access they wanted. So I really deeply worry, and I say this with not one bit of hesitation, that the only real law that we have left is our, our First Nations treaties. Uh, and so when I say the you know, First Nations are, are leading the way, it's, this isn't semantics. This isn't something nice to say. This is true. They have still have some governance rights um, and resource rights over these waters that have been lost. We've lost the, the rules and the tools. And now, of course, the Harper government is moving to extend trade agreements like the Canada-European Trade, trade Agreement, uh, CETA, uh, which basically would give um, uh, big corporations from Europe the right to claim water the way uh, corporations from uh, under NAFTA from the United States are able to claim water and so on. So, I mean, they're really moving to constrain the, the, the not only the, the controls and, and uh, regulations and protections for water, but to do it in a permanent way so you can, so no future government can ever undo it. So I, I think these, this, this is a very dangerous trend. The second trend I see in Canada that I think is very dangerous is, is galloping privatization. And it might not feel galloping to people, but I've watched this in other countries where it starts small. What most people don't know is that about three budgets ago, the Harper government <coughs> Said made in one hidden in one of its budgets was the the the, the new reality that any municipality wanting to upgrade uh, infrastructure for water or build new infrastructure because maybe they've grown a lot can only access federal funds if they go to a public-private partnership. And so, and I remember saying at the time, this is going to lead to municipalities being forced into privatization, even if they don't want it. And the irony is that all over the world, where they've tried privatization of municipal services, they're moving back. I mean, France, in France, 40 municipalities, including Paris, have remunicipalized because it was such a mistake. But only Canada, 10 years later, after the rest of the world, is being forced into these decisions. So you've got places like St. John, New Brunswick, that are having this uh, debate, a very fierce debate. We lost a referendum in Regina, Saskatchewan last week because um, the, the government, the Harper government, said there's, I think it's $650 million. And the city council said, yes, thank you very much. And then they turned around and spent several hundred thousand dollars advertising to people in Regina. And we just couldn't, you know, match that kind of money. Um, a different decision in Abbotsford, uh, British Columbia, where they rejected it and rejected the council that tried to stuff it down their throats. But it, it really is going to gallop across the country as municipalities realize that if they don't have, um, if they don't, if they don't have the money themselves, they only have one uh, way to go, and that's privatization. And then again, if you think about this uh, comprehensive economic and trade agreement with Europe and the two biggest water companies in the world, Veolia and Suez, from France have a toehold, then a future go a future government in Regina wouldn't be able to undo it. So it's kind of a, a box. I'd also warn around the whole issue of water trading, which Alberta's looking at, and we believe British Columbia is going to start looking at. And this is where you convert licenses to basically property rights, water property rights, and you start allowing the trading and selling. I think they're going very slowly here because I think there's a huge backlash against it in Alberta. They can read the polls as well as anybody, but I do think the intention is to start to move towards uh, privatization. 
Is there a country that you can point to that is being a particularly good steward of water uh, that maybe we should be looking to as an example? I don't. I wouldn't say a country. I've got lots of examples in in Blue Future about communities and different projects that are happening. For instance, in Germany, northern Germany, they have a law that no no uh, food production systems or any other kind of industry that exists on the waterways coming out of the Alps can touch can hurt the water in any way that, that um, renders it unfit for drinking water, and it has to be clean enough coming out of the tap to, to for, for babies. That's, the, that's actually the terminology they use. Very, very strict. Actually, Europe's gone to watershed-wide management, which is where they know that most of their watersheds sh- cross two or three or four or even five countries, because these countries are little compared to Canada. Uh, and rather than saying, well, that's my share, that's my share, what they're saying is we're going to uh, Govern them on a watershed uh, basis, and um, and so that there's been some very exciting work that's uh, been done there. Um, Ecuador has has adopted a constitutional amendment to protect the rights of water and the rights of nature, which they actually you know have formulated now that water has fundamental rights, and they've set up a process where citizens can can um, take action and so on. We have a number of countries in um, South America that have come together in a different kind of trade block that um, yes they want to trade and they're not against you know trade and prosperity and so on but they they use the term we want don't want to live better we just want to live well and built into their trade agreements are protections of water and and um, and and uh, nature generally um, so there are examples uh, and there are many examples around the world of communities engaged in uh, rainwater harvesting um, sort of some of the old techniques that were lost again when this sort of modern water concept was imp- was imperial water it was sort of imposed on the global south so there are many examples that i give in the book of where people are and communities are doing things um in a different way but it's um the problem that one of the problems is that i don't know why it is that federal politicians in most countries in the world with some exceptions just don't see the problem maybe they you know in grade six that lesson we all learned that you can't run out of water and we all have this hydrologic cycle like there's a big river out there and you can stick your straw in it it'll never run out i think that got ingrained in everybody's minds and people just can't get their heads around the fact that it's not so i mean in the u.s they're having one you know election after another presidential elections and they argue about everything except water well, we know that 36 states are in some form of water crisis as we speak. We know that the Ogallala Aquifer, which is the water, this, the, the aquifer that runs down the spine of, of, the, of western United States and is their breadbasket, will be, and I quote, gone in our lifetime. That's the Department of Agriculture says. I mean, how can you have an election and not talk about it? In fact, I just read something today where the um, state of Texas is saying that the drought they're going through now is worse than the um, the Dust Bowl drought. I mean, this is it's it's worse and it's probably more permanent. So how this you know this disconnect between the reality that that and this is all over the world, the reality of of what we're dealing with and the plans to plow ahead. You know, you get I have this image of government working, and so here's the you know the 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 food and agribusiness 
part of government promoting agribusiness and promoting chemical use and more water use and so on. And then you've got the trade department over here producing, you know, policy for more stuff and more trade, which is going to use more water and, and so on and so forth. The energy people, I mean, energy, conventional energy uses tremendous amount of water. We think of it as greenhouse gas, but it uses tremendous amount of water. And then there's the little few people stuck over here who are who's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, excuse us, we don't have the water for all this. But it's as if nobody, as if the people who are watching the water crisis and monitoring and the scientists who can tell you where, where the water is and where and how it's declining are somehow off in a little box and they have nothing to do with the policy that's being created. And, and that I don't understand, that disconnect when we have the World Bank even, and certainly the United Nations, coming out with very strong statements about the water crisis and the fact that by 2030, um, demand in our world will outstrip supply by about 40%. Really stunning, stunning statistics. What would a national water policy look like in Canada if you, if you had it your way? And would, it, would a national energy policy even change anything? If, you're, if we're talking about these large mobile institutions with very... With that little voice over in the corner of a few people. Oh, if the government meant it. I mean, if they meant it, of course we could do something. Look what Harper's, when he means it, and takes away all the protections for water, he does it when he, you know, whatever he wants in terms of when he wants to spy on the Brazilians on behalf of Canadian mining companies, he does it. If they had the intention to do it, we could do it. A water, a water, a good national water policy would set very strong standards, what I call based on a water ethic, which is that we have to put water in the center of everything we do. And so all our policy, trade, energy, food, every, economic, all of it has to ask the question: What is the impact on water? And that has to be central to the to the to the to the creation of these policies. And if the answer is it hurts water, then it has to be changed or dropped. And we cannot. It would look totally different. Trade would look totally different if we had to take water into account, or if we had to ask that shirt that comes from that country and and has X amount of water in it to produce. What's the water situation like that there? I mean, what would trade look like if we had to ask the question about the water footprint of this thing that you're importing or exporting? Um, we would have national drinking water standards. We would have national very strict rules around pollution. Martin Luther King said, legislation may not change the heart, but it will restrain the heartless, which is one of my favorite um, quotes of his. Um, we would have a very strong cooperative system between the provinces and the federal government to promote and protect shared water sources. We would consider water to be a public trust uh, that belongs to the people and the future and belongs to ecosystems and other species, and we would not see water as a, a private a resource. We would not allow water to be privatized, put on the open market like oil and gas. Um, we would take water out of all trade agreements. We would remove water from being part of the market system whatsoever. Um, I, we could just, we could we could set the policy for the whole world. We have the smarts, we have the water, we have a situation where we can still catch what's happening to our water, but it, it would have to depend very deeply on a commitment that um, I don't believe the current government will ever have. So I think the question now is to ask the opposition parties where their stand is on this and what they would do and what would, would they undo, what, ha what the, you know, the cuts to these uh, regulations or, or not. And I would like to hear them say, yes, I will, I will undo those. 
Well, that sort of touches on uh, the fact that, no pun intended, the water permeates all every part of our society. I'm curious uh, what your thoughts on about the best framing mechanism to understand water is. Well, I see water as a as a public trust. It is it's a, it's a, a public service as well. Um, it belongs to the earth. It belongs to the future. It belongs to all species. It's something that must be here forever. We are using up today. We're using up the future's water. We're using up the water of future generations. We're sucking up groundwater around the world at an absolutely alarming rate, and way faster than it can be replenished by nature. So we are stealing water from our the next generation. We need to be really really clear, real clear about that. So to me, water is has its own rights. I see water as being kind of, um, sounds corny, but it has having sacred rights. And we need to be protecting it with um, legislation and laws that are more compatible to the natural world than the ones currently, I mean, right now, water is considered property. And for instance, again, I go back to Harper, if you're going to go before the National Energy Board on any of these pipeline issues, you have to prove you have some kind of commercial interest or they're not wanting to hear from you, right? So we, we tend to see water and uh, and nature generally is just you know for us for our for our convenience and profit and so on and I think we have to see it just completely differently we have to say that gives us life and we have to do everything we can to protect conserve and restore it your first book in the blue series was blue gold the battle against corporate theft and it was published in 2002 Um, what has changed in the world of water in the last 11 years there are some good things. Uh, there's much more awareness. I know I talk about politicians not being aware, but I think there's much more general awareness. There are many, many more pieces of research. There are many universities and high schools teaching it. There are many, many, many books. There are many films. There's a consciousness growing around it that was not there when I wrote um, Blue Gold in 2002. So that's that's the good. And there's also been a, a huge network. We call ourselves water warriors that have been that have come together here in Canada. Canada and around the world to protect local water sources and to stop privatization. Um, po- very positive is that the United Nations recognized the human right to water and sanitation, which I was deeply involved in. I thought it would be years before it happened, but just a confluence of things come, came together, which I describe in the book because it's really exciting. Um, uh, and and so the recognition that water that no one should be doing without water because they can't pay for it has been formally recognized by our. our and I consider that kind of like an evolutionary step forward. On the negative, um, and, and, and I'd say on, on the positive, I'll stay positive for a minute, that I think we're winning the privatization more around municipal services. I think there's a lot of evidence to show that even the big companies are pulling out, and the Fra- government of France has had to rescue Violi and Suez and put money into shares. So you've got the government b- um, you know, bolstering these corporations because they're just not welcome in so many places. On the negative side, I am really worried about the displacement of... Uh, indigenous people, communities, villages, peasants, and so on around the world for modern water projects. Um, in India for free trade zones, you know, millions of people being displaced. In China, they're building, they want they want the rural communities gone. They're pulling people into cities. They have these ghost cities. They've built these cities so fast and so big that there are great big cities that don't have any people in them. And they're just displacing people. The land grabs, 
There's a land grab, which is also always a water grab in Africa now, this three times, times the size of Great Britain. And this is where private corporations or wealthy countries come in and they actually buy up the land and the water uh, for profit or, or to feed their people. And they're displacing the very people who know how to live with drought, who know how to live with cyclical climates, who know how to, to dry land farm. And what they're doing is they're pulling up, again, aquifer water, and they're building these big chemical-based industrial farms, just the opposite of what we need. So that, that at a human rights level, it's appalling, but also at an ecological level, it's just the wrong direction to be going. So that, if I would say the thing I'm most concerned about is that I think that one, and I uh, predicted this in, in both Blue Gold and Blue Covenant, that there would come a time that where governments were making decisions around dwindling water resources to put it to economic development and growth or for, for people's livelihoods and people's lives. And I'm afraid we're already seeing that, that that's happened. In your newest book, uh, in your newest book, uh, which is the final end of the trilogy, uh, uh, you, uh, in, as the title would suggest, you look to the future of water sustainability. And I guess the philosophical leaps that we'll have to take in order to get to a place where water is, again, sustainable, what will it take for us to make those philosophical leaps in thinking about water? Well, people are just going to have to come to grips with the fact that, you know, just like those comet movies in Hollywood, where there's a comet coming at the Earth and all of a sudden nothing really matters because the Earth's going to blow up in 72 hours. We have a comet coming at us. It's called the global water crisis, and it's not here yet in Canada in a visible way, although I would argue it is here in Alberta, and it's certainly here in other parts of the country. But it is here in the world. I mean, China, since 1990, half the rivers in China are gone gone. I'm not saying polluted. They're also, they were polluted. They're gone. So we need to get our heads around what this means in a world that's going to continue to grow in terms of population until it peaks around 9 or 10 billion. What does this mean? Where are people, how are people going to live? Who's, you know, who's going to be sacrificed in this world? So I guess what I'm hoping people can do is to, is that we can build the kind of um, movement around this that we built around climate, where people really understand that it's life and death. And this, this is a climate issue. This is very much, I mean, the way we abuse and displace water is one of the causes of climate crisis. And restoring watersheds is one of the solutions. Um, but I can't make people care. You know, a lot of people just, it's like, you know, when the tap, when I turn the tap on and the water doesn't come out of my tap, then I'll be upset. But until then, you know, some technology will fix it. Somebody's looking at, the government's looking after it. Somebody's looking after it. And it's, this is the problem with a lot of issues that we're dealing with is that it's, you know, just a lot of people don't want to know. It's, a friend of mine calls it the right not to know. And I think that's a brilliant term. Uh, the United Nations established that water would be a human right, but I think that is one of the the philosophical leaps that we as a society need to take yeah. to really, really ingrain that in our collective psyche. And some places are. I mean, some since the United Nations recognized the human rights to water and sanitation, a number of countries have adopted their or changed their constitution to recognize the human rights to water and have set out a plan, which every country is supposed to do, by the way. Of course, Harbor government's not doing, but they're supposed to. Um, so, the, so there is real movement taking place. And in the book, I talk about the countries and communities that are really moving this forward. Also, our movement is writing up plans in many different countries. And if their governments aren't moving, 
moving. They're presenting them to the government, saying, you need to do this. Here's what has to happen in our country to fulfill the human right to water and sanitation. Um, here's the obligations for, for us here in Canada. It's really on First Nations communities because that's really where the, with some, some areas of rural Canada not having proper uh, water as well, but it's mostly on First Nations communities. And so that's what, that's where the attention has to go here. Other places, it's much more widespread. It's peri-urban slums and so on. You know, people said, oh, okay, the human right to water and sanitation, you're saying everything will be better the next day. Well, of course not, especially if we're also running out of water at the same time we're trying to do this. But, um, you know, is it a step forward? Is it a statement of principle and belief that we have collectively in the world? And then what do we do? How do we start to make that real? Well, talk me through the the final uh, the final point that you make in Blue Future is that we need to make human laws compatible with nature's laws. Talk me through that argument. Well, basically, all in Western society, water is a property, and and the law the way the law is interpreted is is that it's a property right. And so, for instance, in with a, um, a BP in the Gulf of Mexico, the only people who could sue for compensation were people who could prove that their livelihood had been damaged. Now, you know, forget the fact that the entire ecosystem has been damaged. Nobody can sue for that, and the Gulf can't sue for that. So the concept around the rights of water is that we start or the rights of nature or earth rights. They're different, um, different terms for it, is that we, we recognize that water and nature exist outside of their uh, service to us. Yes, it's a big step to see water as a public trust and that it belongs to all, you know, it is equally all of ours. But then you have to say it really doesn't belong to us, it really belongs to itself. It serves its own its own reality. We need to leave water in the ground. We, leave to, we need to leave water where nature put it because it's serving in an incredibly important function where it is. Um, and that is uh, all the ecosystem, all the species that depend on it, the you know future ecosystems, future generations depend on keeping those systems as intact as possible. And so it's recognizing that our laws <clears throat> of take, take, take and convert everything to a, re a re you know to a commodity and seeing a river and seeing instead of seeing a flowing river that's when all all that it's doing for our our health and for the environment, and keeping us all alive, we see hydroelectricity. So it's it's turning your head around and asking the question: What is what is water, and and what can how can we serve um, this thing that gives us life? How can we protect it, and and could we do that more compatibly in law? And that would start with some very practical things, like not allowing the privatization, not allowing, yeah, as I say, taking it out of trade agreements so that you do not allow it to become marketized, because it's very hard to take back once it's been um, set up as a market commodity. I imagine. That would be quite hard to do, though, to to take water out of the law because it's so deeply entrenched in, as you said, uh, sort of how we how we even think about capitalism in general. Well, I've used to be much more sophisticated, if you will, when I would speak in the Western states, California. Uh, though the states that are just Colorado that are in such crisis now. And I'd say, I know your laws are complicated and there was always the first in time, first in right. And, you know, so you, you've got the, all these legal problems and now I'm not like that anymore. You know what I say? You've got to, those laws were meant for a time when you thought there was unlimited water and there were only a few settlers here and you wanted to populate the prairies. For God's sake, that time is gone. You've got to wipe out those laws and start again. And they should do what Vermont 
Vermont has done and, and name their waters, surface and, and groundwater, to be a public trust and very clearly say it belongs to the people, it belongs to the ecosystem, it belong, it, it, they're even going to give priority in, in times of, of shortage to local sustainable food production over food production for export. I mean, they're very, very clear that this water must be protected as a public trust for all time. I, as I say, I used to be sort of more understanding of all the complications. I don't think it's like that anymore. I think we don't have time. We need some very, very clear principles. Water is a human right. Water is a public trust. Water has rights and must be protected. Water can teach us how to live together. Water can become nature's gift to us to, to teach us how to live differently, to, to not be a source of conflict, but rather a source of, of um, you know, finding, uh, finding ways to deal with other problems because we have this big one. You know, maybe my father hated your father because whatever, but we're all going to not be able to live on this water system if, if we don't fix it together. And I, I've got examples where, where communities have come together across great divides to protect the, the local water. Self-preservation, but preservation of my neighbor has to be the, 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 the thinking. And so I, you know, in the end, I'm actually quite hopeful. I, I consider water to be a, a moral imperative, or hope to be a moral imperative, and water can be a tool um, to help us get there. I have one more question, um, and it kind of, I guess it relates to self-preservation, because I think when it comes to water today, one of the major things that negatively impacts water management is that little actions uh, compounded sort of have larger consequences because water is so connected. But then it works the other way. Uh, small actions by people in aggregate can have a tremendously positive impact. So I guess my question is, what can I do in my own life to make a difference to water sustainability in the future? Well, consciousness, <clears throat> just seeing water, remembering that water doesn't just come out of a tap. I think one of the biggest first problems was taps, you know. So we were just separated from this body of water that you had to use to go to and get and pull over and heat up and touch. And, you you know, now we have all these taps in our homes, and so we, we just think it comes from somewhere else. So just, you know, reestablish or establish a relationship to water and think about it. Don't buy bottled water. <clears throat> you don't need it. I mean, I know there are parts of the world that don't have clean public water, but that's not true here. But then I'd say take it a step further and get involved in the politics of water. Come join the Council of Canadians chapters uh, or join, you know, other or some environmental groups or whatever. Get involved <clears throat> in being a water watcher. You know, if your municipality is looking at privatization, jump in and get involved. Um, get involved in the debate here in Alberta around water future and the the water plans that the, the draft water plans the government's putting together. Don't be benign. Don't sit back. It's really important that we be part of something. Um, and then make the connection between water and these trade and investment agreements because, uh, I mean, Alberta is producing 66% of the country's uh, irrigated products, commodities that require irrigation with only 2% of the water. You can't, you sh Alberta's last province in Canada that should be uh, agreeing to more beef exports to Europe and is driving this thing is more beef exports. More beef exports are going to use more of your local water. You know, it's a bad future scenario. We need to conserve and people need to put these issues together. And I just think that becoming water conscious just changes your life in some really fabulous ways. And it's, it opens a door to understand and more complicated issues around the economy and trade and so on. Mike Barlow, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. If you don't mind, can I just get uh, 30 seconds of ambient sound from this room? <laughs>
That's all the time we have left on this The Blood is Thicker Than Water episode of the CJSR edition. This week, the program was produced by Speaking Into Microphones and by me, Matt Hergy. We produced the show in the studios of CJSR FM 88.5, community radio in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Thank you very much today to Lawrence Hill and Maud Barlow. Barlow's newest book, the third and final in her Blue series focused on water sustainability, is called Blue Future, and it's available now. Lawrence Hill's newest book, Blood, The Stuff of Life, is also available now. The CJSR edition is a spoken word project of CJSR FM 88.5. For more information on this series, you can always visit our website at cjsrnews.com slash edition. For CJSR, broadcasting on 88.5 FM in Edmonton, my name is Matt Hergy. Thanks for tuning in.